Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center and you can also find this link in the show notes. My guest today is Wilfried Olber and we will talk about corporate strategy in the age of global uncertainty and volatility. Wilfried is a senior partner at uh, Roland Berger, where he is responsible for the firm's global commercial vehicle construction and agriculture business. So that's quite a broad portfolio, I would say. And he also leads the US aerospace and defense practice. So even more, even broader topic wise. He's based in Chicago and works across a lot of industries, automotive, industrials and private equity. Previously, he was the managing partner of Roland Berger in India, the head of Roland Berger's Asia automotive practice, as well as the chairman of Roland Berger Middle East and Africa. And he has also served on the firm's global supervisory board. Wilfried's work includes growth strategies, M&A, due diligence, operational performance improvements, and technological strategies. He has also served on numerous industry associations and panels, is a regular speaker at key industry events, and he publishes extensively, including a recent book on doing business in India, which is called Riding the Tiger. So that's one of the things that I guess we will talk about today. Prior to his work with Roland Berger, he was the managing director and CEO of Mercedes-Benz in India and uh, responsible for the passenger cars, trucks and buses there. He held various positions with Daimler in Europe and the US and India before that as well. And finally, he has a PhD in physics with a focus on computational material and science. Uh, that was a long CV reflecting, I guess, a very broad extensive career. Welcome to this podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Really excited to be here. Wilfried, I mentioned the topic of today being global uncertainty and volatility. So do you think looking back at the past couple of years that uncertainty and volatility has actually increased when you look at business? Yeah, I think generally what we see globally is uh, we are challenged on numerous fronts. We are challenged on the front of uh, geopolitics, whether that's the confrontation with Russia or the confrontation with China and the competitive challenge that China also poses to the West, that's one thing. We are challenged in terms of technology. There are lots of technologies that are being developed. Lots of these technologies will change the way we do business. If you look at the automotive industry, for example, the move to electrification is a major challenge and that will have an impact on The supply chain on the internal combustion engine side, it has an impact on moving all those companies from what they did in the past to a new future. You've seen supply chain challenges hitting us, whether it's the semiconductor challenge or simply the challenge of getting anything at all. 
whether it's castings or plastic, what have you, it's been difficult to really make the supply chains work over the last few years. We had massive swings in logistics costs. We have issues around the availability of labor. We have the whole question of climate change, which obviously is uh, forcing us to do business differently compared to what we did in the past. So I think there's massive amount of uh, volatility. There's massive amounts of uncertainty. And that's where the things that you learn in an Indian environment are actually very, very applicable today. Right? It used to be the case that people were laughing at me a little bit when I was uh, running operations in India and said, OK, listen, you guys in India, you always have to be very, very nimble and agile because nothing ever stays the same. And I feel that that kind of lesson and that kind of environment has become pretty much global today. That's interesting, and we'll we'll get to talk about what uh, your India experience can teach us uh, for other parts of the world. Of course, I would like to get back to this volatility and uncertainty. So, if both increase, if uh, the world is ever more volatile, things are ever more uncertain, does that also mean that strategy, corporate strategy, is essentially dead? Because if we cannot make any assumptions at all, or just very few, then how can we have a strategy? Yeah, I think there's a uh, is a question that people ask quite often, the way you need to look at this is you still need to define your North Star. The difference is that we cannot move from A to B in a straight line anymore. That used to be the case, say, 15, 20 years ago. I remember I was the chief of staff of the CEO of Mercedes-Benz. We did 10-year planning sessions and we were reasonably confident that this would work out, right, within a few percentage points. Now, that world has changed completely, and that means that I need to be able to think in scenarios. I need to be able to adjust, move to the left, to the right, maybe even a little bit back at times. But at the end of the day, I still want to move to the same sort of north star with my organization. Now, what that implies is, in my opinion, two things. One is I really need to be working actively with the organization, making sure they understand where we want to go making sure they know what the ultimate objective is and I need to create alignment across the organization. Could you give an example of what such a North Star could be? Because that sounds quite abstract, right? So for example, for a hypothetical automotive company, doesn't have to be any specific one, what could such a North Star mean just to give our listeners an idea of how that could look like in practice? I'm going to put it in the case of Tesla, I think. that's a It's a very simple example, right? That's an example where you have sort of a strategy that's formulated at the outset of forming a company and then executed against. Now, the execution or the vision of that company was to de facto provide a very exciting drive opportunity, an exciting vehicle that has very good performance characteristics to global markets, starting from the top, working your way down to the more mid-class markets and hopefully at some point even lower markets as uh, battery prices become more attractive. And there the North Star is, I want to be a leader in that space. The challenges that I have to sort of work through in between, maybe regulatory challenges that have to have an impact on the way I want to sell, there may be issues in terms of ramping up production, which means I have to find a different way of getting into production or hire a different set of people to make it happen, work differently with my suppliers. Those are sort of hits that you can have along the way, but the trajectory or the target remains the same. 
obviously the target has to be relevant, right? It cannot be a target that at some point is not going to be relevant for the economy anymore and then basically means you're out of business. You mentioned a number of factors that contribute to this volatility and uncertainty, obviously geopolitical shifts, uh, sustainability issues, climate change, supply chain issues, many of which are also connected among each other or depending on each other. So what are some of the key indicators that you would suggest business leaders should keep an eye on in order to be able to anticipate some of the changes that may affect their business models? Because obviously you cannot look at everything constantly at the same time. You need to focus on certain things, right? Yeah, I think you need to do two things. One is sort of, I mean, you need to take into account that snow melts at the periphery, right? So it's important to stay in touch with the people in your organization that are out at the front line. Your salespeople, after salespeople, the people in R&D, maybe the people in production that are seeing different paradigm shifts as far as production is concerned. Because that's where a lot of the innovation, a lot of the information inflow happens. And then you need to decide to take some of these sort of weak signals that you get. Quantum computing is a good example. Quantum computing today, I mean, it has a huge opportunity to disrupt the way We compute, we will be able to compute much more, we will be able to do much more in, say, biology, in medical uh, science, in the financial field, in developing vehicles, all that kind of stuff. But it's still some ways away from application. So what you would have to do is understand what are the leading indicators that you need to focus on to be able to say, okay, listen, there's something happening, I need to follow this. And if it sort of hits a certain threshold, I need to start with targeted experiments to understand this technology better. So I may have one, two, three, five, ten people in my organization that start looking at quantum sensing and the implication of sensing on my business, on quantum communication and quantum computing. So it's that approach. And as these people then engage, so as they engage and see, okay, listen, it's moving to the next stage, that's when I really need to go and then take the, the next step. Do you have the impression that that is actually happening in, in many companies? You mentioned quantum computing, which everybody sort of knows that one day it'll come. You know, It's not exactly sure when. Do you think that a lot of companies actually prepare now, or is it not that people or organizations only think about things when they are actually, they've actually arrived. I'll give you another example, artificial intelligence, generative AI, which now everybody is talking about. Also five, ten years ago, we knew that this would one day come. But my impression is sometimes is that many organizations are only now that actually some tools are available that you can do something with, are only now waking up and trying to figure out what that means for the business model. I mean, you have different types of companies. Some companies are a little bit more ahead compared to others. I give you a very good example, which is the question of uh, Industry 4.0. So some five, six years ago, I had a discussion with a supplier in Detroit, and we were talking about Industry 4.0, automation, taking out people, making the, the whole operation more effective and uh, more competitive in the long run, right? Sort of safeguarding jobs in the long run buy investments in the short run. And at that point, 
he sort of said, well, you know, the street is focusing on cash and I really don't want to spend any money right now, so let me not do it. Obviously, today, where you can't get labor, that company is in trouble, right? So it's a, there are some companies that invest early. If you look at even China investing heavily in automation, despite the fact that their labor cost is like 20% of the labor cost in Western Europe, they're still investing heavily in automation because they know that that's the way for efficiency, scalability, quality, all that kind of stuff. So you have these advanced companies and then you have companies that are just, uh, I think, missing sometimes the warning signs and the weak signals and when these weak signals become strong. So I think you have the whole range of companies. It's hard to say everybody's moving in one direction. What happens is once something becomes sort of hot, lots of people jump on the bandwagon without necessarily understanding what does this mean for me, right? So can I use ChatGPT to write product specifications for me? And then a human just sort of double checks those, right? So lots of companies don't have the foresight to think in scenarios and then think through what this would mean for my business. You spent a lot of time in India and you said earlier that uh, at some point your colleagues uh, laughed at you when you tried to extrapolate some of the experience uh, that you had made on the Indian market and try to apply them somewhere else. I guess uh, that has probably changed. Uh, very few people, I think, uh, would be laughing about these things nowadays. Everybody understands that uh, India will play an important role in global economy as now the most populous country. But maybe you can share some of the key lessons that you learned uh, from your time there and especially those of course that are applicable to other contexts as well. Yeah I think the reason why I wrote the book is basically I'd spent about 14 years working in India and uh, the idea was to go back to all those people that were wondering how can anything function with this amount of volatility and say listen yeah India is a challenging market it's one of the most competitive markets in the world that I know of But there are certain approaches that help you deal with the complexity and help you make money despite all the challenges that you face. And those are challenges beyond the volatility in terms of infrastructure and all that, that Indian entrepreneurs need to overcome to be competitive globally. Now, there were a number of factors that you saw and a number of approaches that were uh, extremely important, right? So there was, first of foremost, I would say, was all about operational excellence. If you look at India as a market and you look at the, the cost of a vehicle or the cost of a passenger seat kilometer in aviation or the cost for a mobile phone, that's among the lowest, if not the lowest in the world. So if that's the case, you really need to figure out how to be very, very careful in spending money so that you can offer a service to your customers at a price that allows you to make money. Is that what is called frugal innovation? Is that what you're alluding to? This is first and foremost, it's just operational excellence. So if you have uh, Mr. Suzuki was in the plant in Noida at some point in time and went through the plant and then opened up the drawers and basically looked at a drawer that was messy. And he said, okay, listen, this cannot be. Because now if you look into your drawer, you try to find a pencil, you're wasting time. That wasted time doesn't serve our customers. So please make sure that everything is arranged and you find your pencil and you save those seconds to serve our customers and provide our customers with value. So it's that obsession 
with operational excellence. It's uh, another example is maybe Indigo also being very obsessed around operational excellence, driving the processes, making sure that turnaround times at terminals are very low, making sure that they have the ramp to basically get up to their planes, which allows you to board a plane very quickly. So that it's this continuous improvement mindset uh, and the fact that you're constantly pressed as far as the pricing is concerned that drives you towards operational excellence. The second point is what you refer to as innovation, right? And you cannot survive in India without innovation. A lot of that is either frugal innovation or I would even say it's innovation that sort of is truly greenfield. So you are working in the case of, uh, I mean, if you look at the book, Godrich has a good example where they bought a company that did paper, which you could burn and that keeps mosquitoes away. And I think that company was out of Indonesia, if I remember correctly. So they bought this Indonesian company. They saw that the product has merit. Their vision was to serve Indian farmers and make it feasible for them to have at least five hours of sleep without mosquitoes. Right, which is, I think, is a, is a great societal benefit. But they also realized that at the end of the day, the cost is way too high. So then they worked with their vendors, found different ways of mixing ingredients with paper pulp and drying to bring down energy consumption, bring down cost and have an offering for the market that works. So it's that kind of innovation that is important in India. Why are you saying that that is so specific of India? Because, I mean, there are other countries in the world, uh, emerging countries, where consumers may not have that much money. So why is this something that you say at least is kind of uniquely Indian way of doing things? I think it's a, uh, there's nothing uniquely Indian about it. Everybody can do it. But the forcing function in India is very strong. It didn't happen in Indonesia because the opportunity to spend money was higher in Indonesia than in India. So it's basically the price point that I can serve the market is way lower. And as a consequence, I need to find really optimal solutions for that market. I need to find 80% of the value at 20% of the cost, right? It's the same if you have the discussion around the Tata Nano. In my opinion, it was a really good vehicle. That kind of vehicle did exist in Europe after the Second World War, right? We had vehicles with 600cc engines in Europe And I think that that's something that at the time was a forcing function in Europe. Today still is a forcing function in India. So one could assume that maybe if, for example, India evolves economically, uh, that may also change. They may lose that golden, you know, the magic sauce, so to speak. Maybe. I think that the positive thing is India moves up and we luckily have seen a significant improvement in living standards and taking people out of poverty in the country the need to be quite as paisa vasul, meaning very sort of focused on value for money, will decrease. Having said that, I think there's still lots of opportunity because these kind of solutions have relevance for Africa, for parts of Latin America, for Southeast Asia in parts, right? These are solutions that make lives better for quite a few people. And then vice versa, if you look at the opportunity for exports, if I can find down the line, cost-effective electric vehicles that can serve the Indian market. That is something that I can export definitely in the markets that I mentioned earlier, but even into Europe. Because nobody, I think, in Europe would want to spend 50,000, 60,000 or more on an electric vehicle. We need in Europe as well transportation, electric or sustainable transportation that's cost-effective. 
You mentioned the possibilities of exporting. Obviously, there's also India as a huge market. At the same time, we see something that um, some observers even call the end of globalization. But if it's not the end, at least there is a lack of appetite for globalization for numerous reasons. How do you see that? Do you see that you know nationalism, geopolitical turmoil difficulties with supply chains, will they in the long term have a negative effect on globalization or is that something that is only temporary? We're seeing a, a kind of a, a retrenchment that will turn around in medium term. It really depends on how you define medium term, right? I think that uh, in the current environment, what we see is a period of probably a couple of decades that is uncertain as we try to reorder the global geopolitical order. And I think the second thing that's happening is there's been an understanding that dependence on dictatorial regimes in critical commodities is dangerous. And the reason for that is that rationality is relative. From a German perspective, for example, it was irrational for Russia to attack Ukraine because you would just cut off some of your most lucrative customers, right? So you're making less money. That's, you know, in a mercantilistic German thinking, that's stupid. Problem is that logic doesn't apply to Mr. Putin. And I think the problem is that in a global, in a global context where China also is a question mark as far as the transparency is concerned and the intentions are concerned, clearly that means that we have to have a broader balance in supply chains compared to what we had in the past. The downside of this is obviously increasing prices. And a big downside that I see is that the flow of technology and innovation is going to be hampered, which obviously has a negative impact on human development. You mentioned uh, the difficulties with authoritarian regimes, which is interesting. Uh, I think that's also a kind of a new spin on an old theme, because I think until not so long ago, many people would have either implicitly or explicitly said that authoritarian regimes actually work better for economic development. I mean, a lot of people were convinced that China would not have been uh, in the position that they are now with a more democratic or a democratic system. So this has also changed a little bit. But what I'm trying to, to get to is, is this a choice of systems? So is that was sometimes called French shoring, you know, trying to make business with like-minded democracies? Or is it more generally speaking, just a diversification, independently of what type of uh, regime or type of system it is, as long as you're not too dependent on one particular country for a specific product or a specific raw material, then that's fine. Or would you say that Western European democracies, for example, should look out more to increase trade with other democracies around the world? I think there's, uh, from a political perspective, definitely a case to be made to say, listen, we would like to support the democratic order. The advantage of democracies is that it's relatively easy to see what's happening because there's lots of debate internally, so it's quite transparent and the chances of being surprised are less. The chances of going to war are definitely less because at the end of the day, nobody wants to die on a battlefield. The, so French shoring is definitely a theme going forward. 
And I think that that will play a role. Diversification was there already before the Ukraine war and before this whole mess started, where people were starting to say, listen, our dependence on China is too high. We need to go China plus one, or we even go China sort of local for local for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons being that de facto it's hard to compete in China against incumbents that are supported by the government. But do you think that, I mean, I think on, on a macro level, this is almost consensus now. But sometimes I have the impression that on the level of the individual company, and also when we're talking about really large multinational companies, that conclusion has not been made. So that there are big corporations that are still putting most of their investments into China and not really realizing or maybe seeing the risk that you just mentioned. So is there a divergence between the macro level and the micro level? Again, it depends on companies and their risk appetite. I think that a local for local strategy in China is fine. What we've seen with companies that are highly dependent on China is that they are starting to diversify their supply chains to have options. Moving out of China overnight is not really feasible for two reasons. One is obviously the cost, but the second is also the fact that uh, China has built a significant competitive advantage by building up integrated manufacturing ecosystems. The reason why China is such a big emitter in greenhouse gas is not only because, okay, some of the technology that they're using may not be that great, but it's also because they're the manufacturing powerhouse of the globe. And that's where all the emissions and the use of energy is going to happen. That cannot be easily transported. We built this up, or the Chinese built this up over the last 30 years, right? So getting this back to the West is going to take time. Getting it back at a cost-competitive uh, sort of uh, price point will require quite a bit of automation. It may not be fully feasible. Yeah, and I think I agree. I mean, I think very few people would argue for trying to replace China as soon as possible. I think it's more a rebalancing. And you mentioned bringing this home to, for example, European countries. But at least when you when we look at India, I think the hope of the Indians is they, that they will also be able to capture a significant share of that, let's put it, uh, diversification pie. Is that going to materialize? Is India going to be the big winner maybe also in this competition between the West and China? I think India is going to be a winner, right? And I'll come to the details in a second. But we're also seeing Vietnam and other Southeast Asian nations as winners simply because they have, a, again, coming back to your position, sometimes it's easier to operate in a non-democratic environment. If you look at Stuttgart 21, that's a good example. Why? Right? In the sense that you have checks and balances that sometimes make decisions uh, somewhat slow. But having said that, I think India has definitely the potential to become winner in this context. There is manufacturing that's happening in the country, increased manufacturing and investment that's happening in the country. There is obviously the local market that plays a role. So it does make sense to have a base in the country. And then on the other hand, there are some challenges as well. A bold prediction the world in 10 years. Wilfred, we have one fixed segment in our podcast, and uh, that is what we call a bold prediction, the world in 10 years. 
And that's usually a challenge for most of our guests because, as we have said before, the world is uncertain and volatile. But I would still like to invite you to take a guess in the topics that we've been talking about so far. Where do you think the world will stand in 10 years from now? I'm just going to try to break this down regionally. I think that in 10 years, we're definitely seeing an India that's much stronger and much more prosperous. I do believe that India will continue to grow at six, seven, eight percent. Doesn't have the same exponential growth as the Chinese for a variety of reasons. But I do see a, a strong case in a country that's now sort of broken the two and a half thousand US dollar per capita GDP barrier. So that's one thing. The second thing is a hope. And that hope is that we are able to maintain decent relationships with China and are able to maintain uh, the status quo around Taiwan so that we have a way of handling China going forward rather than having to confront China. In uh, the case of the Ukraine crisis, I hope that we will win. And I hope that that will lead to change in Russia. Right, Whether that's going to happen, again, is, uh, is everybody's guess. But um, I mean, that would be something that I'm quite hopeful to see. And as far as the US and Europe is concerned, I think there's going to be, yes, there's going to be continued uh, alignment and exchange. There's going to be some rebalancing. If we don't solve, for example, the energy challenges in Europe, then there's going to be some movement of industry over to the US. And I think that generally... Again, what we need to see, and that's more hope than anything, is Europe that is more capable of defining a joint defense policy, of defining a joint foreign policy, and that is finally coming to terms with mechanisms that allow it to be more decisive. So we can't have 100% agreement on everything, right? So I think that's another area where I do hope that we are able to find a way forward because I think it's absolutely necessary. You mentioned uh, that your hopes were that the West would continue to be able to engage with China and that the Taiwan status quo would somehow be maintained. Is that a hope or is it also a realistic assumption? I mean, in other words, do you think that that will actually happen or are we heading there towards some kind of an armed conflict between predominantly the U.S. or a U.S.-led coalition and China. Yeah, I think the, I mean, war is always lose-lose, right? What happened in Ukraine doesn't help anybody, right? Uh, so I hope that we find a way to be much more rational as far as China is concerned. The dependence on China and Taiwan in, for example, global semiconductors is massive. About half of them are produced in China. China has done significant work in solar, for example, which we will need for the green transition. We have significant work in artificial intelligence. So if we want to manage the risks of artificial intelligence, we cannot do that without the Chinese. We cannot combat climate change without the Chinese. In 2021, 31% of the global greenhouse gas emissions was China, which was by far the largest contribution. So there's so much at stake that requires cooperation rather than confrontation that I think that just my hope is and I mean I would think that that's also going to be the final result but I didn't see the Ukraine war coming either is that uh, sort of sense prevails. Having said that we obviously have to say that there are certain things that we don't accept 
because the problem with some of these authoritarian regimes are that they do react similar to what we've seen with Hitler, right? When he attacked Czechoslovakia and then sort of did the Erledigung der Restschichai, the, the finishing off of the rest of Czechoslovakia. People don't stop. So you mean appeasement basically is, is not working, right? No, I don't think it's working. We need to have a credible threat and a credible uh, counter I mean, you're, you're based in the U.S., and obviously the U.S. plays the decisive role there on, on the Western side, at least. Uh, as far as I understand, uh, as polarized as the U.S. political system is, that is probably one of the very, very few areas where a majority of both political forces can agree that the U.S. should take a harder course when it comes to China. So in your view, what are those red lines? Because it's also a little bit like the the slow boiling of the frog, right? So it's not necessarily a huge switch, uh, which would obviously be an invasion, for example, of Taiwan, but there's also a lot of like smaller things that are being taken. In your opinion, where should those red lines be drawn by, for example, the U.S.? I think the U.S. itself definitely plays a major role, but needs the support of the Europeans. We can't have two different tracks and two different ways of communication, for example, around Taiwan, just what happened with Macron. I think any violent change of status quo would be a red line. The rest, I think, can be handled more easily. The consequence of all these developments, in my opinion, is also that we need to relook at Germany and Japan, right, in terms of the role that they have to play from a, a mutual defense perspective. Do you think that the U.S. will listen to the Europeans? Uh, because that's always a, a big question mark, right? Or is that a dynamic that will unfold basically without uh, any input from the Europeans and then the Europeans will have to fall in line or, or maybe not with all the consequences that that will have? Yeah, I think, the again, I mean, this is the much more qualified people than me to talk about these things. But if you look at the aid that's being given to Ukraine, that's largely dominated by the US, right? So if you want to have a voice, you need to make sure that you have a seat at the table. Definitely something has happened on the German side. I think the overall investment so far has been about 14 billion euros. But the US, if I'm not mistaken, is close to 50 billion. Can we participate and will we be hurt? Yes, but uh, we cannot just talk about it. We actually need to do something. Fair point. Executive Briefing. What you should read now. Wilfried, another segment in our podcast is uh, what we call the Executive Briefing. And there we ask our guests to come up with a few suggestions in terms of readings that our listeners can do if they want to look more deeply into the issues that we've been discussing here. What would your suggestions be? What I just recently read, which uh, I liked, is Seeing Around Corners. This is a book about how to handle volatility and how to place small bets to make sure that you're prepared as the world changes. And the picture that you have to have in mind is really a maze where you sort of go through, not in a straight line, but via some detours. So I think that's a, it's a good uh, a book. Another one is Common Purpose by somebody who survived Auschwitz, right? And that's all about the importance of, A, obviously, personally having a purpose in your life so that you know what your life is all about. But then that clearly applies to organizations as well. I think what we need are organizations where everybody knows the contribution that they can make 
to the success of the organization, to the success of society, and that they are enabled and empowered to do that. I'm not a fan of very sort of command and control kind of organizations. I'd rather tell somebody, this is what we want to achieve, try to help them and enable them to achieve the target rather than to tell them now go left, go right. In today's environment, those kind of organizations are just not able to cope with the amount of change that's uh, coming down on us. Great. Uh, those sound like two very, very interesting uh, suggestions. And we'll make sure that we put the links to those publications in the show notes of this episode so that our listeners can go there and find them. And of course, I'll add a third one, and that is your own book, Riding the Tiger, where people can learn about your lessons and your experiences uh, from the Indian market and how these can be applied to other contexts, in particular other emerging markets. Wilfried, we've already come to the end uh, of uh, this episode. Of course, given the volatility and the uncertainty, there are no easy answers. There are no easy ways out or panaceas. You have to be, I guess, flexible and nimble. That also reflects the reading suggestions that you just made. Thank you very much for this very, very interesting conversation. And I guess we'll have to schedule another follow-up to see how some of the things that we've addressed today have unfolded in the, the future. Matthias, thanks a lot for having me. Really enjoyed it. Likewise. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.